Who is Jesus? What is he doing? And what does it mean to follow him in the world today? My name is Matt Lewis. This is the Follower Podcast, and everyone is invited to the conversation. Welcome to session four. A uh, little recap, real, real quick. <laughs> this whole series is called Hope? Question mark, Jesus. Uh, the conviction or the thing behind it. Oh, hi, Lana, you wonderful human. Andre, my boy, welcome. We're going we're gonna to mandate next week. It's going to be glorious. Uh, Rebecca Clark, I wanted to say this. I'm about to order some coffee from this woman uh, and her, her crew, people at Bishop's Coffee, Vintage Coffee, they're changing the coffee game. They invented this thing called Dip and Brew, which is like a proper, proper coffee, but in a bag. It's, I'm excited. I haven't tasted it yet, but I trust them. I back them. It's going to be amazing. So go order that stuff. Little plug for free because I believe in Christian people doing business in the world. And also coffee is a wonderful thing. Number two, we're back in this series. And uh, we've been doing this hope question mark Jesus. And what this is all about is uh, we're in the world. And in the world at the moment, there's a deep need for hope. Rightly so. Welcome to uh, your uh, extended lockdown if you're in South Africa, right? Uh, I don't know how you felt yesterday. I was watching the president uh, give the State of the Nation address. And uh, for me, there was a mixture of emotions. I feel like this is an ethical conundrum, right? Uh, extending the lockdown has uh, economic implications. And yet at the same time, not extending it has uh, implications on people's lives and it's complicated it's difficult and personally I, I want to say I'm so grateful for our leadership at the moment uh, so grateful for that and just for leadership for clear leadership it's such a difficult time to lead and uh, I would just say to you if you are a Christian person we should really be praying for our leaders at this time because they need it and at the same time to say that in the midst of all this I do have hope but my hope is not in my president. My hope is not in political systems. My hope is not in, even in healthcare workers or anything that man can do. As wonderful and all those things are and as necessary as they are, praise God, we need to pray for scientists and people on the front lines and all that kind of stuff. Amazing. But my hope isn't actually connected there. My hope goes way beyond that and way beyond this life. My hope is connected to the person of Jesus and everything that he's done. And I want to say that what he has done is so big and so expansive and so massive that it brings hope even into the darkest of situations, right? That even if we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we know that we do, do not fear evil because he guides us and he leads us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. And he takes us to these places of green pastures and flowing streams. And that's just not like some kind of escapist Zen idea. That is to say, that there is a, a reality that is greater than this reality, something that has been established. The language I'm starting to find for it is that something was something was established in eternity, and now because we're animated by eternity, we transform the temporary, right? That's That's the language I'm starting to use to get my head around what the gospel actually means. It's so much bigger than anything you've ever understood. And we carried on going back to uh, the passage in, Corinth in uh, Corinthians. Um, I want to read it for you real, real quick just to 
have a recap, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 3 to 4. The reason we carried on going back there was because that's the original apostolic gospel, the thing that is of most importance on which we stand uh, and uh, to which we hold fast and by which we are being saved, which is to say this, that um, and it's been handed down from many people and we get to receive that baton and then hand it over to others. And this is what it is, that uh, the Christ died that he was buried and on the third day he rose again. And we said, we asked the question, why was this good news? And to understand why that was good news, we had to understand who the Christ was. If you don't understand that, you're going to need to go back to um, session one in the podcast. Then we had to understand uh, what it meant that this Christ died. And again, what we were saying is it's not so much that someone died, it was who did the dying that matters. Um, And so... When we understand that the Christ died, we start to understand why the gospel is good news. And then the final thing that we really wanted to press into is that this Christ who died didn't stay dead. He actually walked out of the tomb. And so he actually defeated death in that moment. And that was a really, really, really big deal. If you don't understand that, you want to go back to session three, right? And then we said, and what is our response to this? And we looked at Peter and uh, we looked at Peter and how he talked about how, how it talks about in, in Acts that as he preached this message of this one who died, was buried and then rose again, that people were cut to the heart and they asked, what should we do now to be saved? And then Peter repents, uh, responds and he says to them, you've got to repent, you've got to be baptized, you've got to receive the Holy Spirit. And so we started to press into this idea of salvation and not only what we're saved from, but what we're saved for. Right, And so to end that thought before we move on to the next thought is to say uh, what I didn't get to yesterday, and I really think it's important, is we can look at the crucifixion of Jesus like the crocus flower. Now, if you don't know what the crocus flower is, and this is uh, something that I stole actually again from Tim Mackey, who is really one of my theology inspirations. I have a a brain crush on him. Uh, If you're watching this, Tim, thanks for your brain. Um, The crocus flower is a flower that that is... prominent in very snowy areas and so when the heavy snows come and winter sets in obviously everything gets covered with snow and stuff starts to die I was recently in Germany when winter came in and all the leaves fell off the trees and everything was covered and then the snow came in and uh, it just covers the ground and it's kind of this dormancy this winter right but then the crocus flower is this flower that breaks through the snow long before spring actually comes and is an indication that winter is passing and spring is coming. So in the midst of the current winter, you have this crocus flower peeking up through the, through the snow as an indication that spring is coming. Right, And that's what has happened on the cross, is that we currently still live in the winter. The snow is still on the ground, but the crucifixion of Jesus is a crocus flower that has broken through the snow and points to the future reality that spring is on the way, that we know the kingdom of God has been established and is now being revealed through us. And so that's what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 to 21, when we realize that uh, we have been reconciled to God and now we have been given this ministry of reconciliation and God is making his appeal through us to the world saying be reconciled to God and so what we know is that we haven't been saved to be passive we didn't get saved into a vacuum is what I like to say we got saved from death 
for life. And then we not only live into that life, we declare that life to the world. So in other words, we are Noah with the ark saying the flood is coming, the flood is coming, but get on the ark. You can be saved too. Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be able to endure the winter and there is new life. You don't have to be afraid of death because death has actually been defeated in Jesus Christ. And not only for a future time, but for a present time. So eternity animates the temporary and we start at once again entering into that Imago Day role of cultivating the garden as, as rehumaned humans and, and our patch of land that God has given us to steward and to look after. We start cultivating that garden in the temporary until when the new heaven and new earth comes. There's, a, there's a, only a little bit of a difference between what he's given us responsibility for here and the new heaven and the new earth that is coming in the future. Do you see? That's what it's about. We're reconciling realities now. We've been given this ministry and that's why we don't only get baptized in water um, as a sign that Jesus is Lord and that we have now died and Christ now lives in us, but we also get baptized in the Spirit because that's a seal of that promise and then power to live it out in this moment. I hope you understand that. That's a recap of where we are. If you get it, hands up, high fives, fire. That's some good theology right there. You're welcome. Uh, let me just make sure you're with me. Give me some hearts in this bottom screen over here. Give me some hearts here if, you, if you're tracking and give me some, give me some uh, comments over here. That's right. Blaine's got it. He's with me. Okay, sweeto. Um, so that's kind of where we left off yesterday. And now we look to our life, right? And this is what I want to say is that um, the salvation, so you were cut to the heart by the gospel, maybe yesterday for the first time or at some point in your life. Praise God. Okay, uh, that wasn't revealed to you by man, but by God. We know that no one comes to the Father except by the Spirit. Nobody can call on the name of Jesus unless the Spirit leads them there. Okay, so that's already grace that's being made evident to you. So that's an amazing thing. But your salvation, your ability to say, yes, I want that. I want to get baptized. I want to receive the Spirit. I want to, I want to, I want to step into this relationship with Jesus. I want to say that's only a starting line. It's not a finish line. And often we misinterpret salvation as a finish line, as in now we've arrived, instead of a starting line, as in now we've got some work to do. Yeah. And so when we reinterpret it as a, as a starting line, it's John Wesley's analogy is of your spiritual life being a house. What a cool picture. And he says that this moment of salvation, what some of you had yesterday perhaps or somewhere in your life, when your eyes are opened, when you cut to the heart and you say, what should we do next? And then you repent and you're baptized and you receive the Holy Spirit. Um, that's like stepping through the front door of the house. Okay, But once you've stepped through the front door, you now have an entire house to explore. Right? And the tragedy with most of our Christian world is that so many people are still caught in the doorway. So, so many people have only ever explored the entrance hall of their faith. They don't know what the kitchen looks like, the living room looks like, upstairs bedrooms, downstairs basements, backyards where there's a theme park and, and a forest that you can find tigers in, whatever the vibe is, you know. Uh, people haven't explored the depths of their relationship with God. Not only that, they haven't made that known to the world because they thought that a prayer was the point. 
but actually that was only ever the beginning. Does that make sense? Remember what we've been saying, Jesus is not coming into the smallness of your life. You are being invited into the eternal expansiveness of his life. You're not, he, you're not being saved for more of you, but just now with the Jesus sticker on it. You're being saved from you <laughs> into Christ. Does that make sense? That makes sense. I hope that makes sense. I hope you're getting that. And I can only say it a million different ways. And hopefully at one of those ways is going to help you let the penny drop and go like, oh, okay, I've, I've actually died with Christ. And now it's Christ who lives in me. Okay, so that's salvation. Uh, so then how do we live this life? How do we walk day by day in relationship with Jesus? And I think the answer is in, in so many different ways. But one of the key ways, I believe, is, is the table. Uh, is is the is communion what well, we see that Jesus gives us Julia man it's so good to see you let's uh let's chat after this it'll be so good to catch up um the table so that meal that Jesus has the last supper that Jesus has before he goes to be crucified and he does a whole bunch of things in that last supper remember what we've said Jesus is prophet priest and king and by the time he comes in in the triumphal entry he is fully in prophet mode Right? He's in prophet mode. Everything is Banksy art. If you don't know what I mean by that, uh, it's the idea that Banksy is kind of like a modern day prophet. If you know who Banksy is, he's this graffiti artist, super famous, except nobody knows who he is. And he does these murals, these graffiti murals in all, all places in the world. And these murals are a statement on what is, but also a comment on what's coming. And they're powerful art that communicates truth. And so the prophets of old were kind of like Banksy. They were performance artists, right? Walking around walls and lying in feces, doing things, uh, strange things but things that communicated deep truths. And in Jesus' life, when he is approaching the temple in Jerusalem, particularly from then on, because he's been avoiding, 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 and he's like, now the time is here. And so he steps in and he's like, now we got to go. From that moment, he switches profoundly. Not that he hasn't been doing it before, but now it's like he turns up the volume and literally everything, you start watching carefully. If you have eyes to see, you'll see that that whole experience is flooded with prophetic imagery. It's just Banksy all the way. He's just going, look here, look there, look here, look there. Everything is loaded from the fig tree to the temple to everything. And this Last Supper is no different. Okay, it's no different. There is a reason why the Passover was the right time for Jesus to come to Jerusalem. Because he wanted to tie what he was doing on the cross with what the Passover had historically meant. Okay, there's two Jewish customs, festivals that are really important here. The one is Yom Kippur, and then the one is the Feast of the Passover. And these are different emphases. Yom Kippur is primarily about atonement, it's primarily about the forgiveness of sins. But the Passover is primarily about the exodus from Egypt. Okay, and there's a reason why Jesus ties the crucifixion with the Passover, because what he's trying to do is he's trying to make a statement about what he's doing on the cross. Don't you what I'm not saying? In the same way I've been saying this a hundred times every session so far, this is not not about you. Okay, it is about you, but it's not first about you. <laughs> okay, and it's only good news for you because it's bigger than you. Okay, uh, to say it another way, here's a little analogy. If someone one day asked me to describe gravity, okay, explain gravity to them, 
uh, here's what would be a bad way to describe or explain gravity to someone who didn't know what gravity was. If I said to someone, if I was my starting point for explaining gravity was, there are human beings on the planet, okay? And somehow we had to find a way to keep human beings on the planet. So then the earth started spinning on its axis, axis creating a gravitational force that held human beings down to the planet. And so that's why gravity exists for the purpose of holding human beings on the planet, right? Technically, there's, there's no wrong. It's just not true. Because whether there were human beings on the planet or not, gravity would still exist. Gravity does impact you, but it's not because of you, right? A better way to describe gravity would be to say, there's a planet, <laughs> okay? Maybe better than that, there's a universe. And in their universe is a galaxy. And in that galaxy is a solar system. And in that solar system is a planet. And this planet is spinning on its own axis. And because it's spinning on its own axis, it creates something called gravity that moves the tides with the moon, that holds things to its surface, that, that makes the entire substance of that planet hold together in a powerful way. And also, by the way, humans are able to stay on that planet because of gravity. Okay, can you see the difference? That's what we've done with the gospel. We started in the wrong place. As N.T. Wright says, we preached a piece and then we lost the whole instead of preaching the whole and getting the piece thrown in. Makes sense. So yes, you are forgiven because of what Jesus has done and this is the atonement of your sin. Beautiful, but it's not about you. <laughs> okay, it's first about him. If you understand what I'm saying, give me some hearts over here. Give me some fire over here. Give me some high fives. Give me some something. I want to know that we're all still in the story. While that's happening, okay, in case you're in the world, yes, we've got some high fives, we've got some hearts, people are tracking. Casey, our new wonderful Dutch human, welcome to life. Gabs has got the fire, three fires even, that's Trinitarian, Gabs, good theology. Okay, so... Jesus gives us this thing called the Last Supper. It's the most important thing he does before he goes to die. And we're about to unpack why this is so important for the Christian life. So to do that, let's go to Exodus chapter 12. If you have the workbooks, it's there. If not, go there in your Bibles. We are going to read quite a lot of scripture. And the reason is because I don't, I don't want you just to think that these are just my ideas. As far as is possible, what I'm trying to do is go to the Bible and say, what is this Bible saying about our Christian faith? One question that I ask myself often is, if there was no Christianity, okay, and an alien came down to the planet and wanted to figure out what Christianity was all about, and all they had was a Bible, and they just picked that thing up and they started reading that thing, uh, what kind of Christianity would they come up with? And would that look like some of the Christianity that we have today? And I think there's a challenge for us in that. And so what I'm trying to do as far as is possible, and I know that I can't do this completely, nor can anybody else on the planet. We all have our own bias. I get that. What I'm trying to do as far as possible is go to the text and see what the text is saying. And then hopefully that helps us. So uh, the Passover, Exodus chapter 12. Um, Egypt has control over Israel. Israel is in uh, uh, slavery to Egypt. Uh, they're at this place where they're just making bricks, making bricks, making bricks to build all the things that Egypt is building. 
God has called this dude called Moses to go to Egypt and to liberate Israel, the people of God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, etc., out of Egyptian slavery. Um, excuse me. That's my brunch. <laughs> That's really gross. Anyway, um, out of Egyptian slavery. Uh, Moses has gone to Pharaoh and he has asked Pharaoh to let the, the Israelites go. And Pharaoh keeps saying, no, 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 no. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And no, 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 no. And so all these plagues then start coming. Here's a really powerful insight that we're not going to go down the track of, but just as a, as a highlight, is that each one of the plagues were paralleled to the gods of Egypt. Very powerful. Anyway, so these plagues keep coming and, and essentially uh, God is showing that he is God and that the pagan gods are not. And then there's this final plague that comes, this final curse that comes, which is uh, the passing over of the spirit of death over Egypt. And God gives some very specific instructions to the nation of Israel about how they are so, to survive this judgment that comes from God on uh, Egypt, the spirit of empire, right? So chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt. Now listen carefully. These are very important words. Uh, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. In other words, Israel, what I'm about to do in this moment is going to set up a whole new thing for you. And I want you to remember it like that, the beginning of months. Beautiful language. Um, then he says, go tell the congregation that they've got to get a lamb and uh, they've got to and they've got to prepare this lamb, right? And then he gives some, spec some specifications for what this lamb is supposed to be in verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Okay. A lamb without blemish, sinless, spotless, uh, and this lamb will then be killed and the blood will be applied to the doorposts of the houses. Carries on. Um, <clears throat> they shall eat the flesh that night, roast on the fire, etc. Uh, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it. And he gives some basic guidelines as to how to eat this lamb. And then he says this, and this is very, very important. Verse 11. He says, In this manner you shall eat it. Your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you uh, to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Just remembering again and again and again that there is the symbolism of the spirit of empire that runs through the whole Bible. Okay, so we see it in Babel, we see it in Babylon, we see it in the Assyrians, we see it in Egypt, we see it in Rome. And so whenever we're dealing with the spirit of this, this empire figure within scripture, we've got to understand that there's a consistency with how the kingdom of God, 
the, the God character, God in the Bible resists the spirit and comes in the, in the opposite spirit in another way. That's what Jesus is doing when he's clearing the temple. Okay. And that's what Jesus is declaring as his coming kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world, but we'll get into that. Um, verse 17, it says, you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. For because, why will you observe this? Because what did I do on this day? I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Okay, and you will observe this day throughout this throughout the generations as a statute forever. Um, so Moses calls on all the people to do this, um, and the Passover happens, uh, and 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 basically every, every the, the spirit of death comes over Egypt. Uh, the firstborn die, and there's weeping in Egypt. Pharaoh then calls the the Israelites, and he says, "Get out of my land." And so then they get out of the land, and it says this: the Exodus in verse thirty three. Um, but I love this from, this is what the Pharaoh says to the Israelites when he, when he kicks them out. He says this, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. In other words, what's the intention of this exodus? It's so that the people of Israel may be liberated from the captivity of empire of Egypt, set out into a new place in order to serve the Lord. That's the intention of the Exodus, right? And so then 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. They were urgent and in haste. They ate it with a belt wrapped around their waist and a staff in their hand and sandals on their feet. They weren't, they weren't comfortable in Egypt, right? There was an urgency about them having to leave Egypt. Um, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up on their cloaks and their shoulders. And the people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for sil silver, gold, and jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. <laughs> so the exile of the people of Egypt, of Israel, out of enslavement to Egypt is not only the, the liberation of Israel, but it's the plundering of Egypt. Woo. When Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And uh, we know that, that gates are not um, offensive weapons, they're defensive measures. And so there's something that happens in the sacrifice of the final lamb where it's not only that the people are liberated, but it's that hell is plundered. There's a picture there. Um, <clears throat> and then we institute the Lord's Supper, verse 43. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him circumcision being the sign of being the people of Israel. And what's the new circumcision in the New Testament? It's the baptism and then, and then the spirit, right? Grace by faith. The law couldn't do it. So now there's a circumcision of the heart that happens by the power of Jesus. And so what it's saying is that this 
Passover meal, this whole meal that is now being instituted as a reminder of what God has done is for the people who align themselves with that reality. In other words, if you want to stay in Egypt, stay in Egypt, but then you can't have this meal. Okay, this is for the people of God who've been who've been liberated from Egypt. That's what he's saying. Um, no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn, pass through with you, and would keep the Passover to the Lord. In other words, if a stranger wants to be a part of what this meal means, here's what needs to happen. Let all the males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who moves among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. And so it is the desire for the nations to be blessed by this exodus. But there is a, there's a stipulation. There's a boundary. God is saying, if you want to be a part of this liberation, you have to understand what it means and you have to choose it for yourself. And we'll see why this is so important later, because Paul gives us some of these same guidelines in the New Testament community. So, if you understand what I'm doing, and if you understand where this is all going, and if you're tracking with me, let's make sure that everyone's still on board. I'm just conscious that this is a lot, but but there you go. That's where the Passover is from. So give me some give me some hearts over here. Give me some fire over here. Some hands up. Let's make sure we're still there. While that's happening, you want to tune, turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13 in your Bibles. If you have your workbook, uh, it's there in your Bibles. Uh, everybody there. Cool. We got a heart. We got one heart, one little lonely heart uh, up there. Okay. We got a few hearts. Do not break any of its bones. Absolutely. Absolutely. Come on. You saw it there. You saw it there. Can you see Banksy? Banksy, 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 Moo. You got it. Okay. Great. So here we are, John chapter thirteen. Now we move to the place, John's living life, amen, John. Now we move to the place where Jesus initiates the Last Supper, okay? He, and here's what he's doing again and again and again. Listen, it was not my time. That's what Jesus keeps saying. Don't, I've healed you. Don't go tell anybody about it because it's not yet my time. And yet for some reason, he goes, now is the time and we're going to Jerusalem. Why? Because he very strategically wanted his death to coincide with the Passover because he is repurposing the Passover for as a vehicle for the gospel. That's what's happening. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing. I hope you're seeing that. And again, in the same way that he was not less than the Messiah, he was just more than the Messiah. He took the initial um, expectations of the, of, the, of the Messiah, affirmed those, but then superseded those. I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Right, And then to say, you've heard it said, but I say, to put it on steroids. In the same way, he's taking the Passover and he's saying, I'm not less than that, but I'm superseding that. I'm putting that whole thing on steroids. I'm here to help you understand what the whole story has been pointing to in the first place. That's what he's doing. And so here we are in John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of Passover, we're in verse 1. 
when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Okay. So what does Jesus know? That his time has now come to depart this world and go to the Father. And he had loved them. And so now he continues to love them to the end. And the question is, how did he love them to the end? What did the love of Jesus look like in this moment? Uh, Verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus listen carefully, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and he took on a towel and tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what am I doing? What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand it. And then Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet then, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Stop for a second. Jesus knows that he comes from the Father and he's going to the Father. He knows who he is. Okay, He knows that he's king and that he's about to be inaugurated as king. He has a sense of the weight of this moment. And what does he do with that authority? He takes off his outer garments. He ties a towel around his waist and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. Why is this so significant? Because Jesus was a rabbi. And if you were a rabbi, your outer garments were a signal of your authority. Okay, so you'll you'll read often where Jesus is critiquing the rabbis. He says they love their phylacteries to be wide and they they love to be honored in the courts. Okay, so so rabbis had these garments that that were a presentation of their authority. And what is Jesus in this moment doing? He's taking that off. He's taking off his status. He's taking off his signs of prestige and power. He's removing. Why? Because you've heard the leaders of the Gentiles and the pagans do it this way. But in the kingdom, and what is the cross? It's a kingdom move. In my kingdom, the least, the greatest among you will be a servant. And so he's taking off his clothes, his outer garments, signs of authority. And what is he doing? He's wrapping a towel around his waist. And then he is taking up the most menial job. So washing feet, this was a job reserved for servants, for people who were the least of these in the house. And so he starts washing the feet of the disciples. This is why Peter is so offended. Okay, because your rabbi would never wash your feet. A servant washes feet, but never the rabbi. And Jesus is saying in my kingdom, this is how things work. I need you to understand that the Passover meal, and we'll get into this in a second. The Passover meal is you leaving Egypt and all its psychologies, all its mentalities, all its spiritualities, all its gods and the ways in which they break the world. You're leaving that 
and you're entering, entering into a new reality. There is an exodus from the way of being in the world and you enter into a new reality, a new way of being in the world. And the more you come with me on this journey and come with me to the promised land, the more the kingdom of God will come on earth just as it is in heaven. There's a new kingdom that's been established. And uh, we're to be reminded that there's an exodus that has happened. How do we know this is what Jesus is saying? Uh, verse 12, he says this. He says, do you not understand what I've done to you? Uh, by the way, that whole conversation with Jesus, the feet and the washing, there's a whole bunch of stuff around salvation there. But we're not going to go into that because we want to stay focused. Do you not understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Stop for a second. Is this about the washing of feet? Does Jesus have some, <laughs> some kind of serious problem with feet? Does he, does he really want us to have clean feet? No, 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 no. It's not about washing of feet. The washing of the feet is a symbol. Okay, It's Banksy. And he's saying, if I've done this for you, you should also then do it for others. Because, verse, verse 15, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, you, is not greater than his master, Jesus, nor is a messenger, you, greater than the one who has sent him, Jesus. If you know these things, Blessed are you, what, if you know them? No, 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 no. Blessed are you if you do them. You haven't been liberated out of Egypt into the freedom of what this new life that Jesus has offer, offered you just to know some stuff. You've been liberated to do some stuff, right? There's this beautiful thought that says, it took a moment to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took a lifetime to get Egypt out of Israel. And that is true for us. And that's why Jesus gives us the anchor of the Passover meal. So that time and time again, on a weekly basis uh, in the early church, we can hold it up in front of ourselves again. And remember, we're not in Egypt anymore. We're not defined by our bricks and how many bricks we're made. We're not giving ourselves to the God of capitalism and productivity. We're not defined by the gods of another pagan world. No, 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 no. Yeah, we remember Yahweh, who brought us out of Egypt and set us apart to be a people even in the wilderness. Even though the snow is thick on the ground, there's a crocus flower. Even in the wilderness, the cloud went before us, the fire went before us. How did we get into the wilderness? The power of God split the sea and we went through it just as we did the waters of baptism. And now out in the wilderness, we are sustained by the manna in the desert, the bread of life. And there being sustained in his presence, we are set apart to be his people and we create a new kind of reality even out there in the wilderness. As God is getting Egypt out of us, he gives us stipulations for that to be made a reality. And then when the time is right, he says, now is the time for you to cross into the promised land. Oh my gosh, if you don't see it, I don't know what else to say. So, so powerful, so powerful. Um, Jesus carries on talking here in John, um, verse 27, <clears throat> he gives, uh, this morsel of bread to, to Judas, uh, 
And it says this, then after Judas had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Judas and Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him to buy what they needed for the feast of the Passover or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Um, I want you to know that because I want you to know that Jesus knew what Judas was about to do and he loved him anyway. He served him anyway. Important to know that. That's, that's how this new kingdom looks. Verse 31. When Jesus, Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him, the Son of Man, in himself, in God, and he will glorify the Son of Man at once. Little children, He's talking to the disciples and by extension, you and me. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. We take this and we make it vague and we we put it all over the place. Jesus is speaking out of a direct context here. How has he just loved them? He's, He's... washed their feet. He's taken off his robes, put on the towel, become a servant, Philippians chapter 2, and washed the feet of people. And just as he has loved us, so we are also to love one another by this, by what? By the way we love, by our ability to understand that we've left Egypt. The exodus has happened and we live in a new reality now. By the way we love one another, um, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have this kind of love for one another. So we've been cut by the heart, to the heart by the gospel. We've said we want to respond to that. We have repented. We are no longer Lord. Jesus is Lord. Not our kingdom, his kingdom. We no longer live. Christ lives in us. We have been baptized, making a public declaration of that. As we went into the waters, we died. As we came out of the waters, Christ, we came. We were baptized into Christ. And we have received the Holy Spirit to have power and live out his kingdom reality now in this moment. That's what's called mission, right? And he is saying that... Um, as we do that, people will know that we are these people, these disciples of Jesus uh, who have received a teaching and been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, if we have this kind of love. And so the Last Supper, communion, is an anchor in the world that calls us back, calls us back, calls us back. And every time we're tempted to forget and make a golden calf out of the very things that we plundered out of Egypt, (laughs) go read that. Every time we're tempted to go back to our our idolatry, what does God say to Israel? He says, hey, Israel, remember. Remember the God who called you out of Egypt. And what is the table? It's both a declaration, we'll get to that in a moment, but it's also an anchor of remembrance, where we remember we're no longer there. We now look like this. It's powerful. It's powerful. Luke chapter 22. Um, Luke chapter 22 is a powerful one as well. Um, uh, it's basically the same situation, but from the perspective of Luke. And uh, 
Hey, Brigitte, how's it going, man? Good to see you. Joe, my boy, all the way from, I think, still in Germany. Good to see you. Um, verse 14. When the hour had came, when the hour came, which hour? The hour for Jesus to go be crucified. He reclined a table and the, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So earnestly that he planned the whole thing around this moment. That's how earnestly, right? Uh, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Until what is fulfilled? Until this Passover is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying this is a picture of what is about to happen, right? And notice he uses this word kingdom again and again and again, because this is not just about the forgiveness of your sins. That's part of it, but it's, it does affect you, but it's not about you. It's about a kingdom. It's about an exodus. It's about a new reality in which Jesus is king of the universe and we are his followers. Carries on saying, he says, um, I've earnestly did it, it will be fulfilled in the kingdom. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table for the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man to whom who betrays him. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Um, here we see a very, very powerful picture. Uh, what is the bread and why do we eat it? We eat the bread to remember Jesus. This is my body, which is broken, broken for you, this bread. Okay. Uh, what did the bread symbolize previously? It was the bread of the Exodus, right? So they had the bread without yeast because they had to leave quickly. So, so I, my body has been broken and is now the bread to break to break the power of sin, sin being Egypt. I'm going to, you're going to leave Egypt. Are you with me? You're going to leave Egypt and I will be your sustenance as you go there. So what we're doing is we're saying we're no longer, it's, <laughs> it's Israel in the desert and they're, and they're living on manna, the bread, where Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And they're getting all cross about the fact that all they've got is manna and quail, miraculously provided food from Jesus. And they're saying, I wish we were back in Egypt because at least then we had this stuff to eat and that stuff to eat. And what does Jesus say? He's saying, no, 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 my body is the bread and I'm broken for you to liberate you from that. So remember that I'm enough. Your daily bread, let me be your sustenance. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And we'll get to that in just a second around the feeding of the 5,000, mind blowing, and how Jesus becomes the bread of life for us. And then what is the blood and why do we drink it? The blood is also how we remember, remember Jesus, but it's also the blood of the new covenant, right? And it's aligned with the blood of the lamb. And the blood of the lamb over the doors was the protection from death. And so the new covenant is this agreement that in Christ, the wages of sin that is death have been dealt with. And when we say yes to the invitation of Jesus, when we're cut to the heart, when we repent, baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, we are consistently in this new covenant and agreement whereby death no longer has any sting for us. Right? <laughs> We've been rehumaned, and not by our own efforts, not by our own ability, but what, but by what Jesus has done. 
And we realize that we're redefined now. We're not part of Egypt. An exodus has happened and we've moved into a new reality. There's a new agreement that's happened between Jesus. And so, yes, our sins are forgiven gloriously in the blood of Jesus. But at the same time, we are aware that it's not only just that you're a nice boy, go do now what you want to do with the rest of your life. It's the fact that death is defeated in Jesus. And so we become a people of hope in the presence, living his reality into the world. Does that make sense? Okay. What does this have to do with the Passover? Everything, as I've just said, right? Jesus is linking the Passover to his action here. And he's saying in the same way that the blood of the lamb was your protection from death, so now the blood of the lamb is your protection from death. And in the same way that lamb had to be spotless, so this lamb had to be sinless. And in the same way that lamb's bones weren't broken, so this lamb's bones weren't broken. And in the same way that lamb saved the people of Israel from death and then led them to exodus in the same way when we talk about salvation we're asking the question what have we been saved from death what have we been saved for new life in Christ where he is Lord and we are in his kingdom we are ambassadors of his new reality and so we yes have left Egypt but we have to get Egypt to leave us that's the table. It's powerful. And, and what does this new reality look like? Oh, man. Uh, love one another as I have loved you. And how has he loved us? He served. He became a servant of all. The greatest among you will be the servant. That's how, that's how his kingdom comes on earth, just as it is in heaven. When we stop living according to the rules of Egypt, even though we've been liberated from Egypt, and we start living according to the kingdom of God that we've been liberated into. Okay, so we're going to keep going. Um, I want to get into some New Testament teaching now around what this all means, okay? So you've kind of got the picture, what Jesus is trying to pull apart, and uh, now let's get into some New Testament teaching. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and I'm going to start unpacking some stuff. If you're following in your workbooks, uh, I kind of jump around a bit. Um, not not Tamia Ben, Timmy, unless Tamia has also joined. Uh, no, Timmy, not Tamia. Anyway, here we are. Uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 10. In your workbooks, there's a little bit different. You may also see some passages from Acts there. Just to say, when I first wrote this material, I had a perspective on Acts, that, and since then, I've learned more and grown, and so that perspective has changed a little bit around what's happening in Acts and the Last Supper and the Passover meal. And so I only share that to let you know that we're always on a journey. We're always growing. Um, and so that's a good thing to know. That's a good thing to know. I used to think something, and then as I've continued to pursue the person of Jesus, I now think a different thing. And that's okay. There's grace for, it, for us in that. But we won't go too much into that. You don't even need to worry about that. What we want to focus on is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul's teaching into the Last Supper here. He's writing to the church in Corinth. Uh, a bit to know about the church in Corinth for this to make sense. Corinth, I've actually been to Corinth, which was a great privilege. Corinth was kind of like the Las Vegas of its day. Uh, it's a port city. So um, sailors would come in and uh, lots of different gods going on and just kind of craziness. So think Vegas. Uh, but an uh, ancient first century city, town, village, in our perspective, maybe. But it was a big deal at the time. And uh, 
So there's all kinds of syncretism going on. What I mean is there's mixing of worldviews and ideologies, and there's lots of, there's this new church that's being born, but this church is struggling to figure out what it means to leave Egypt. Okay, so what it means to truly embrace the spirit of the Exodus and step out of an ideology of empire and step into the reality of the kingdom. Okay, poor Ronnie, unique Hecate, Kevin McCullough, I haven't seen you in ages. Will, turning this around, I don't know why that keeps happening. That's my towel, by the way, you're welcome. I do have hygiene. Um, good to see all you people. We're talking about... Passover and what that means for us in the gospel. So there you go. Um, so we're in Corinthians chapter 10. Corinth is the Las Vegas of its time and people who are now becoming followers of the way of Jesus. By the way, I went to that first church. I stood there. It's tiny. It's so, so small. Uh, I want to say maybe like, uh, like 10 meters by five meters, small little, small little space. So we're not talking mega church here. And, and Paul has been ministering here and now he's writing to this church and he's just helping them and he's correcting them in a bunch of things. And he's starting to get into their treatment of the Passover. Now, all that we've just spoken about for the past hour about the Passover should help you understand the weight of what the Passover meant, what the, the Last Supper, what communion meant for the people of the way, and therefore what it should still mean for us today as Christians, how it is an anchor point in our ongoing life with Jesus that calls us back again and back again and back again because although we've left Egypt, Egypt is still leaving us. And so we have a tendency even though we've been liberated from captivity to long for it and to still want to operate according to its principles. But the cross is a liberation story. It's about a new kingdom that has been established by a new king and to be saved is to be saved from Egypt into his reality, Corinthians, right? We become ambassadors of this new world, reconciling a world that is still under the power of Egypt, Rome, Babylon, Assyria, whatever other power you want to call, talk about. And we're reconciling this messed up world and all its expressions with the kingdom of God. And we become outposts. It's um, back in the day when you would have a king and then you would have an ambassador from another kingdom and he would come and he would declare the reality of that kingdom in this kingdom. Or when you have... Uh, a foreign uh, a foreign office in another nation. So when I'm in another nation as a South African, what I'm looking for is a South African embassy. And when I walk into the South African embassy, all of a sudden in that building, even though I may be in Italy or Greece or Iran or wherever I am, when I'm in the South African embassy, South African governance operates in that place. We are to the world what that embassy is to that country. Although things are operating still according to the principles of Egypt, we have been liberated from Egypt. We have a new king and we are an embassy of his kingdom in the world and our lives operate according to his regulations. Do you get it? That's what the cross is about. Jesus died to defeat death and we didn't just get saved from, we got saved for, for eternal life and that eternal life looks like his kingdom. The kingdom looks like the king. Okay, you, I hope you're getting this. Guys, I'm just trying to explain it from a million different angles so that we can start to pick up what we've been missing for a long time for many of us. Okay, so now we're in 1 Corinthians 10 and just like us, the Corinthian church is struggling to get Egypt out of them. And they're practicing the Last Supper, the Passover, but they're practicing in a way that still looks a lot like Egypt. So here we go. Paul says this. He says, uh, verse 1, 
For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed him and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What does that mean that they were overthrown in the wilderness? It means even though they left Egypt, Egypt didn't leave them. And they were making idols and they were marrying with foreign cultures and they were giving their worship to foreign gods and they were worshiping Baal, etc., etc., etc. Although they had been liberated from Egypt, they still longed for Egypt. And so they were overthrown. And uh, uh, the description here is intense, man. It's like, although they were baptized and although they lived in all the religious things that we think are what it's all about, they, and yet they were still overthrown in the wilderness. And then Paul's very explicit here in verse 6, he says, Now these things took place as examples for us. So this is not stuff that just happened a long time ago that has no implication for us. It says these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Okay, in other words, when they sat down at the oof, when they sat down at the Lord's table, they didn't take it seriously. When they, uh, when Jesus comes to the temple, right? They filled the temple. They are they are serious about their religious duties, but they rise up to play. They're, they're talking about giving sacrifice to God. They're talking about Passover and the liberation from slavery at the same time, enslaving the poorest of the poor and excluding the Gentiles and the nations that God came to save. This It's the same thread, guys. I hope you're seeing it echoing through the story, through the story, through the story, again and again and again, God giving a spotlight to these things. This is what he's trying to teach us. Uh, And then he goes on and he gives us a list of the kinds of things that we do when we're out of Egypt, but Egypt's still in us. He says this, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. And then we're destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did. And then we're destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the age has come. We're living in the end times. I just wanted to say that. That's a little intersection. Keep going. Don't get sidetracked, Matt. Verse 12. Therefore, in other words, because of this example, because of what we've seen by the people who were leaving Egypt, but Egypt not leaving them, because of this example, let anyone who thinks, now this is very, very, very important, listen to this, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In other words, he's saying, okay, 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 okay. The fathers before us, Moses and all the guys, they were as well-intentioned as you are. And yet when they left Egypt, they still longed for Egypt and they still fell. So for you, just be careful to stand firm lest you fall. Because there is temptation, but here's the beautiful thing. God has not allowed us to be tempted beyond what we can endure. He's given us a way to escape this temptation. Which temptation? The temptation to be in the wilderness, but still live like we're in Egypt. That's the temptation. 
Therefore, because whenever there's a therefore, we ask, what's the therefore? Therefore, right? Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, what do we have to do in response to this? If we don't want to fall into the same trap that these guys have fallen into, flee from idolatry. Don't, ta- don't tolerate it. Run away from it. Flee from idolatry. What's idolatry? Worshipping Egypt and the gods of Egypt, even though we're in the wilderness and have been liberated. So this, this is, listen, he's not talking to pagans. He's talking to followers of the way. So this applies to us. Yes, we've been liberated by grace, but now we must apply ourselves. We have to apply effort to, to respond to the grace that God has given us, right? We want to cooperate with that. Uh, we sow to the Spirit, Romans chapter 8. Um, we flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. And now he gets, you're saying, what does this have to do with the Passover? Now he gets to it, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, it is it not a participation in the blood of Christ. In other words, aren't we saying when we drink that cup that we have left Egypt? <laughs> that we understand that one died, therefore all have died. All right? That the, that the blood has been put over our lives so that the death can pass over us. And not we haven't just been saved from death, we've been saved for life. And for life means the leaving, leaving of Egypt. Okay? Um, the bread that we break, it, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? The bread that, uh, because there is, now this is so good, there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What's he saying? This is for the church, the body of Christ. And so as we eat this bread, we are saying collectively that we are one body in this thing. That's what the baptism is. We've died and we've been resurrected into Christ. We've said that a million times. I hope you get it by now. Um, verse 18, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, no, no. We're not talking about voodoo and magic here. That's what he's saying here. Okay. What he's saying though is that, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Woof. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. We shall provoke the Lord to jealousy. Are we stronger than he? So here's what I want you to understand. There's much more going on here than your own personal happiness. This is about the glory of God. And God has set a people aside for himself because he is creating a remnant, an outpost of his kingdom people in the world. And when we leave Egypt, but still want to play with Egypt, what's happening is that we're provoking the Father because we're saying that, that we're participating in the things of that spirituality and that culture. This has massive implication for how we deal with our money and what we do with the marginalized and the least of these and those downtrodden by society. Right now, in COVID, why does the gospel matter in COVID-19? Because as we eat of the cup, drink of the cup and eat of the flesh, it has implication in South Africa for those people who live on the margins, those people have been pushed aside and we can't just leave Egypt but still want to benefit from its ways of being in the world where the big guys at the top crush the little people at the bottom. That's not what liberation looks like. That's not the exodus. That's not the cross. And so we come to the table when we actually drink, we participate in the blood. We say we die with Christ to live like Christ and we participate in the body. We say all of us now are sustained by the person of Jesus, even in the wilderness. Man, I hope you're getting it. So freaking strong. Um, Verse 20 in chapter 11 now, 
He says, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? For in eating, uh, oh, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. That's what he's saying. He's saying, when you come together, you do this Passover thing. I'm saying you're nullifying its power. That's what Paul's saying. Why? Because in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. And one goes hungry and, and another gets drunk. What? Uh, do, not eat, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. It's so important how we do the Passover, how we do communion, and what we think it's supposed to be reminding us about, right? Because even in verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, there's a message in your method. How you're doing it is saying something. And how we do the Passover and then what that means for our lives is a declaration of the person of Jesus. And so... And so Guys, this is not a trinket. This is not a lucky rabbit's foot. This is not just something you add on to your Christian life so that you can get your babies baptized and have someone to, ma- someone to marry you. Man, that is the strongest deportation of what the gospel is actually all about. When we come around the table, we are, de- we are participating in an eternal story of the liberation of God's people from the spirit of empire, which is animated by the Satan the evilest of evil, the thing behind the thing behind the thing. And the the Messiah came to crush his head to save us from death, but then to liberate us into his kingdom. Man, I hope you're getting this. Um, I'm wondering, I think I should probably end now because we've been going for quite a while. It's just so good. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Jesus, really, really quick. I want to I wanna unpack something here really, really fast. Matt, how do we do this? Oh my gosh, how do we do this? In the feeding of the 5,000. So we're in um, John chapter 6 now. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to hit one more thing, Mark. Then we're going to land and we're going to actually have communion together. So if you have some bread and some grape juice or some crackers and some Coke or whatever the thing is, it's the symbol that matters. It's, uh, it's not important what, else, what you have. You can go get that. Uh, just listen as you get that. John chapter 6, I had never seen this until I started researching what the Passover means for Christian people. And then this jumped out of me and it blows my mind. And then I was going through it again today and I saw another thing. And and I'm not building a doctrine around this, but I just think it is so very cool. Um, In John chapter 6, it says this, After Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Verse 4, I've never seen this. I don't know how I didn't see verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. (laughs) If you know where I'm going, just give me a heart or a fire or a half hour or something. I just got to know that people are tracking with me. Verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. We're talking about the feeding of the 5,000. If you're with me, give me a high five. Maybe you already knew this. I didn't know this. (laughs) It's so good. The Bible is amazing. Um, Here's what happens. There's this crowd of 5,000 men. And their families, massive crowd. 
and they're hungry. And it's the Passover. <laughs> so this dude with his lunchbox, some rolls and some fish pulls up to Jesus and gives him these little things. And Jesus blesses it and breaks it. <laughs> and when he blesses it and he breaks it, it feeds the masses. And when everybody has eaten their full, there are 12 baskets left over. How many tribes in Israel? <laughs> After this miracle, here's what's crazy. Now, this is a thing I saw. I'm not building a doctrine. I'm just saying, follow the thread. Is it possible that this is what the story is saying? Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. And it was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them, and the sea became rough because of strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It's interesting to me <clears throat> that the original Passover liberated people from a place, and then they crossed the sea into the wilderness. And then in the wilderness, which must have been a pretty bumpy place to be, it was the presence of God that got them through the time. Just a thought, just a thought. <laughs> Verse 25, Jesus is now on the other side of the lake and this crowd comes to him and uh, he starts talking to them and he says, uh, when the crowd found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who, has sent, who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written, and he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. And all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to the, the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will raise him up on the last day. Verse 48. This is the Bible, people. 
I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 53, truly I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on me, on my blood abides in me and I in him. What does Jesus say? If you abide in me, you'll produce much fruit. This is to my Father's glory. If you drink my flesh, you'll abide in me and I will abide in you. Um, Verse 57, as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. How many times has he said that? Not like the bread the fathers ate. He's made this comparison between himself and manna about a million times in this passage. And then they died. Whoever feeds on the bread will live forever. Death is dead. The sting is finished. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. I hope you get it. I hope you get it. It makes no sense to be saved from death, to be liberated into eternal life, and then to still long for the very death that we were saved from. And the table, the Last Supper, is Jesus repurposing the Passover so that we will remember on a weekly basis, this is the beginning of all months, this is the beginning of all days, there's a first and foremost priority to remember you're not in Egypt anymore. And you don't need the things of Egypt because the bread of life has been given to you. And if you will feast on him, when you drink of his blood, you partake in his blood. And when you eat of his body, you partake in his body. And when you recognize that he is your sustenance in the desert and his blood is your liberation from death, you are now empowered to live his reality into the world to do what he did at the table to love as he has loved us to become servants of all people and to not make the mistake that we see here in Mark chapter 35 to 45 uh, when John and James come beside Jesus and they say hey when you when you're in your kingdom can we sit on your left and on your right see they're they're out of Egypt but they're still thinking like Egypt they're following Jesus but they think that he operates like Rome he doesn't and how do we know that he says this he says are you able to drink the cup that I drink, when you drink of the blood, you partake in his blood, right? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant. It is for those whom the Father has prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant and James and John, uh, at James and John. In other words, Jesus has just told them this and they start arguing because although they're following Jesus, they're thinking like Rome, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, you name it in our current context. And Jesus called them to him and he said this, and this is where I'm going to leave us. And then I'll ask Ben to get involved. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over him. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does it mean to be saved?
And what is the hope of the gospel? That in the power of Jesus, death was defeated. And by the blood of Jesus, death has passed over our lives. But we've not been saved into a vacuum. Because the cross is an exodus of the people of God from the bondage of slavery to the spirit of Egypt. And we have been led out by Jesus to be a new people that live in a new way. And what does that way look like? That the greatest among us is the servant and that just like Jesus, we give our lives up for others. This is love, that someone will lay down his life for his friends. In the world today, if there was a community of people who took off their garments and wrapped a towel around their waist and started washing the feet of the others, of the, of the societies in which they lived, started living in a kingdom way, stopped defining themselves by how many bricks they made in Egypt, but started being sustained by their daily bread, the, the bread of life that is Jesus, started counting themselves as dead with Christ and alive to Christ. If we started living the message of the table, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so until such time as he comes again and brings it in its fullness, would our prayer Father, your will be done, your kingdom come here on earth just as it is in heaven. Would that prayer not be answered? I believe it would. And so just before I invite Ben in, I'm going to ask you um, if you've been preparing your communion. Um, we're just going to have communion. I want to remind you uh, the words of Paul that we've just looked at. We don't drink this thing lightly, lest we drink, ju drink judgment on ourselves. And so what does that mean? It means... If you're not willing to uh, get the Egypt out of you, then don't come to this table lightly because we declare Jesus in this moment. This is not a trinket. This is not a, this is not a, uh, this is not a, a religious exercise that we do to make ourselves feel better. This is us participating in the liberating power of Jesus. And we are saying, of course we'll fail. I get it. All of us are going to be in the wilderness and long for Egypt at some point and grace finds us there. But at the same time, we have to consider the weight of this table and why it is an anchor in the wilderness to remind us what it means to be liberated people, to be saved people. And so uh, as you get your blood, uh, the blood of Jesus, well, maybe let's start with the body. Let's remember that uh, uh, his body was broken for us on the cross. And in the breaking of the body of Jesus, we are reminded that we are, we are broken free from the power of, of Egypt over our lives, from the power of sin that's been broken over us. We're no longer slaves to sin. But more than that, we are reminded that we have been given the bread of life. And we don't have to live uh, by, the, by the ways of this world anymore. We don't have to enslave ourselves anymore to a spirit of empire. We don't have to define ourselves anymore by how many bricks we make in Egypt or what our productivity is. Our faith is not in the systems of the gods that he destroyed in those 10 plagues when he brought Moses into the situation. Our faith is in the person of Jesus and he is the living bread. And we can go eat all kinds of other breads all over the place, but we will hunger and thirst again. But if we come and eat of the bread of Jesus, we will never hunger again. And when we eat this, we declare the, the time of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and we declare that he is our sufficiency. He is enough. And every day we wake up and we wait for the daily bread that comes from heaven. And we declare that Jesus is our King and our Lord. And so as you eat this bread, think about it soberly and think about what it means for you to, to partake in that together. And so if you're ready to enter into that, and if you're not, 
but you want to, if you've never said, I, I, I want to repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, I want to receive Jesus, right now in this moment, you can say that to Jesus. And you can enter in and you can take this and you can be a part of this desert community that changes the world, right? And so as we eat this body, eat of it, but remember that you partake of the body of Jesus as you do. And as we drink of the blood, <coughs> remember that the blood is the blood of the lamb over the lintels of the doorposts so that death passes over our house. Remember that we've been saved from death itself. That death has no more sting for us. And so we become a people animated by eternity, transforming the temporary. That we're a people of a new world. We're an ambassadors of, an, of another kingdom. We're an outpost of his heavenly reality, even in the midst of this one. Even though there's snow on the, on the ground, the crocus flower is sticking above the snow. And we are living as people of the future, declaring that future reality in the present. That's what this blood means. It doesn't just mean uh, have a nice life. This is your eternal insurance policy to heaven. No, 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 no. This is your fuel for mission. <laughs> That's what it is. It's the blood of Jesus that washes away all shame. So you can come out of the bushes, Adam and Eve. You can come back into friendship with the Father. And in that friendship, as you abide in Him by drinking of the blood, you can now produce much fruit for the glory of God in the world. That's what this means. And so even as we drink, it's, it's our commitment to say, God, we want to live fruitful lives for you. We want to live with eternity in mind and change the temporary as we do. And so as you drink that, remember this is what you drink too.